This is J.G. Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello, and welcome to Season 6, Episode 24 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm John. Welcome back, John. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you're still alive? <laughs> I am. I'm still alive. I'm full of life. I'm full of love. That's good. That's good. You're yeah. like uh, Quiz Kid Donnie Smith. I, well... <laughs> I do know where to put my love, though, Mike. Well, that's good. That's, that's good. the one thing. That's, that's the key difference right there. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> well, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be back. Yeah, this is part three in our series on Psycho, Joseph Stefano, and Robert Block together, combo, combo, psycho creators, where we're going to be looking at Joseph Stefano's contribution to the psycho mythology which was the film, which came out in 1960, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, Stefano wrote the screenplay. Uh, it starred Anthony Perkins and Janet Lee, And it is semi-famous. And just like last week, spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. There's no way we can yeah. talk about this movie without spoiling it. Yeah. And if you haven't seen the movie, honestly... I can't think of anything else, including listening to this podcast, that you should be doing more than watching Psycho. So stop. I agree. Stop listening right now and go watch Psycho. We'll wait for you. When you're done, come back and we'll continue this podcast. Agreed. Okay. Now that everyone's back, <laughs> let's talk about Psycho. Yes. So, okay, well, I mean, this is, you know, a classic, not to bury the lead or whatever, this is a classic and, and everything, and it's so much a part of uh, society and uh, our lives as film fans and everything. So, I mean, my question for you is, like, do you remember the first time you saw it, or what are your earliest memories or impressions of Psycho? I was always aware of Psycho. Psycho was obviously a movie that, you know, came out when my parents were younger. I never saw it as a kid. Um, I didn't see it until college, actually. Um, I was vaguely aware, like, if I applied a little more uh, brain power to it, I would have figured out the spoiler. But I hadn't really thought about it too much. And then, you know, film analysis class comes up. We watch Psycho. And I just remember at the end of it, uh, you know, class is over, lights come up, and it was just one of those things where I think my eyes were wide, and I was like, wow, no way. That's a great movie. You know? That's, it's something else, man. Yeah, it is for sure. I mean, for me, like, growing up, like, uh, my parents were weird. Like, they basically did not watch any movies or any TV shows. The one exception really was the mystery you know the the uh, pbs show they would oh, yeah they would watch every episode of that thing and I, I would watch it with them that was sort of like our our thing our, our weekly family television watching was mystery and as sort of an expansion of that we would tend to watch mysteries you know like classic film mysteries it, it was like a weird thing it was like the first time I was ever aware of like a genre you know and it's like well what's the is this a mystery now t today it's just like I, I can't even think of like that as a genre it's so so bizarre but um because of that we ended up watching a lot of Alfred Hitchcock stuff but at the same time I was very young so there was a, a good deal of sort of like censorship going on and you know they'd show me North by Northwest and you know Strangers on a Train but I wasn't watching any Psycho, you know what I mean? But yeah. it was one of those things where I was definitely aware of it. And as I started getting more and more interested in film and stuff like that, uh, it was, when I was in like high school, I still hadn't seen Psycho just because I hadn't gotten around to it yet. You know, I was basically discovering the entire 
canon of of you know American film, and it was it was a big task, you know. So um, so I hadn't gotten to everything yet, and there was one day where I was at home sick. I was like a freshman in high school, so like fifteen years old probably. I was at home sick, and my mom came back from the library, and she's like, "Here, you know, I know that you're a fan of Hitchcock, and I know that uh, you know you're really interested in filmmaking." So I got you this videotape on Alfred Hitchcock. You know, it's like a documentary on Alfred Hitchcock. And I'm like, oh, cool, you know. So I start watching it. And in addition to, you know, lots and lots of great stuff, they had like a a ton of clips from his various movies. And they flat out showed the last scene in the movie with with Mother, you know, in the chair. And I'm like, well... There goes that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, at the same time, it looked really intriguing to me and everything. And and I eventually rented Psycho, you know, probably shortly thereafter, I rented Psycho. And I vividly remember watching it in my my bedroom. Like, my bedroom was in the attic, you know, by itself. And it was, like, late at night. I started at, like, 1130 or something like that at night. And I watched it, and I thought it was, you know, fantastic. Um, But it also really scared me which is something that you know movies don't usually do so what I remember more than anything (laughs) is finishing the movie and you know it has that great ending and even though I knew the ending I was still blown away by it and I was like wow that was so good and then I thought I really have to go to the bathroom I really (laughs) have to pee really bad but there's no way in hell I am going down to that bathroom in the middle of the night because I'm afraid that Norman's <laughs> going to be there. I'm afraid that I'm going to run into Mother, you know? So, no, I'm just going to hold it. And I did. I held it for the entire night. And that's how Mike got sepsis. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yes. So, yeah, I mean, I, I've been a big fan of this movie, you know, for since since high school and i've seen it a bajillion times and i even just went to see it on the big screen again last week because uh nick digilio the the film critic for wgn was showing it at at a local theater and it's this great program that he does where he does like a talk afterwards and everything and you know the crowd is always really into it and stuff and uh it was it was pretty great seeing it on the big screen again here, here, here's a quick question uh, because when I rewatched it, it was uh, Blu-ray, mm-hmm. and I hadn't watched it in a while. Uh, is the Blu-ray the correct aspect ratio? Because what I noticed was during the credit sequence on my sixteen by nine, there were some very tiny black bars at the top and bottom, but then the rest of the Blu-ray, the picture filled the screen. The Aspect ratio, you've opened up a can of worms, okay? I'm just telling okay. you right now. The... I know that I have, but the thing <laughs> is, it's because of you that okay. I even cared. Okay, the the aspect ratio of the original Psycho is very interesting in that it was shot with multiple aspect ratios in mind. Basically, okay, it was shot in full frame, one three three to one, like TV, because part yeah. of the idea was that, I, if I'm not mistaken, they were going to break it up into parts and show it like a censored version as part of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. I think they did that. But regardless, okay. so, so that's, that's one possible aspect ratio. But in reality, like theatrically, it was a time of transition for the movie industry. And... Um, the spherical aspect ratio had been 166 to 1 and was slowly moving to 185 to 1, which is what it is today. Because of that, there were some theaters which were set up for one ratio, some which were set up for the other. Most were set up for both, right? Mm -hmm. So the way that the movie was shot was basically done it was done so that you could show it in any ratio from 166 to 185 uh depending on the sh- shape of your screen so these days now for the most part it's shown in 185 especially since that's what most movie screens are however and this is my problem with the blu-ray okay the okay. blu-ray is 185 to 1 but 
our television screens these days are 178 to 1, which is almost, you know, halfway between 185 and 166. So clearly, Hitchcock would want it to fill the screen. But instead, there are very tiny black bars at the top and bottom of the screen these days. And that annoys the crap out of me. Okay. And here's another thing. Here's another fun fact, which no one seems to pay attention to and no one seems to, to bother restoring or whatever. But Select Prints, when it first came out, had the credit sequence in lime green. That's why it's that weird really? grayish. You know, you would think it would be black and white, right? You right. Know? But it's that weird grayish color. The reason is because it was supposed to be in, in lime green. And no one's ever restored that. Even, even when they were making the Gus Van Sant version in 1998, they knew that. And the opening credit sequence of that movie is also lime green. So why hasn't anyone restored it? to to its proper green and why hasn't anyone opened up the mat to 178 and why don't they get rid of that crappy surround soundtrack and just make it the the straight up mono like it's always been with the lime green thing that that's one of the things that jumps out about the movie is i think that that sometimes especially because people are you know they look back at you know sort of like old movies like hitchcock chose to put this in black and white. He very easily could have made this a color film, but he chose black and white on purpose for this. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and and there's so many. I mean, it's become such a part. I mean, even the making of the film has become such a part of sort of like American mythology that it's really hard to tell the fact from the fiction these days. I've heard 5,000 stories, you know, about why this movie is in black and white. Everything from they didn't have the money to they knew that they would never get it past the censors because of the blood, to, you know, he just thought it was a good idea, to, um, uh, and this one I kind of believe, <laughs> he had just made, uh, what, like, North by Northwest, right? Yeah. W- which was basically, like, the equivalent of making a summer blockbuster today. You know, it was, like, the equivalent of, like, making a Spielberg movie. Huge yeah. budget, shot in VistaVision, which is, you know basically 70 millimeter and everything you know they pulled out all the stops for that movie and apparently there was some critic who said like north by northwest is good but um alfred hitchcock's been making all these super high budget movies and if he were given a normal movie budget his movies would basically be nothing you know he doesn't have the talent to to back up you know his his thing and uh, the 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 legend is that he read that that review and said oh yeah I'll show you. I'll make my next movie with my TV crew and shoot it in black and white, and it's going to be one of the best movies ever made. I could very easily <laughs> see that being the case. Yeah. That, that is completely in line with Hitchcock. Yeah. So, that, that would make sense. So, yeah, I mean, who knows exactly what it is. It was probably a combination of all of those things, you know. But whatever the reason, I mean, I think it was the right choice, you know. The black and white in this movie is fantastic, you know. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, it, the the that in and of itself sets a mood. Yeah. Uh, for the, for the movie as a whole, uh, you know, especially the you know like the moral choice at the beginning with uh, with Marion, you know, making her decision about embezzling and everything. Like, you know, it's it's a black and white world. There's a right and wrong going on, sort of thing. Yeah, and they play with that a lot. You know, I mean, I, I heard this before, but one of the things that that Nick DiGiulio brought up was, you know, like. If you look at the, the start of the movie, you know, before she does anything wrong, she's wearing um, white underwear and has a white purse. And then yeah. after she takes the money, you know, now her purse is black and her underwear is black, you know, as if to say yeah. she has made this transition, you know, like Darth Vader and stuff. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, they play around with that stuff a lot. And, uh, you know, just the the sort of, you know, like noirish you know sort of like very contrasty you know shadows and and just objects and stuff and not having color sort of mess with that i think is is pretty cool well i mean geez the the scene where you know they're talking in the back room and that you know the owl is there and that like all of those animals are on the wall and the way they loom yeah i you know that works that honestly works better in black and white than it does in color yeah, I think that's true of a lot of the movie. Uh, the photography is amazing. Yeah. Um, 
So, I mean, what what do you think about the movie on the whole? Uh, it's absolutely brilliant. I, I you know, like it, Psycho is a tough movie to talk about because there's you know, what what could I possibly contribute to the conversation? You know, like th- this is one of the uh, you know it's it's part of the National Film Register. Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, there there's a reason. I mean, I every time I watch the movie, I enjoy it more. Like this time rewatching it, one of the things I walked away with was about the patrolman that sort of dogs her for a little bit in the movie. And in and of itself, just just the patrolman doing the way he's shot, the way that he exists in the movie visually is, you know, such a, a brilliant representation of her conscience. And that sort of makes... Norman's, uh, you know, inhabiting the room full of dead creatures that makes that jump out even more. And so, I I mean, just in terms of a movie that knows how to build suspense and knows how to build. But but the thing that's the funniest thing is like the suspense isn't doesn't have anything to do with the murder per se. Like when you after you get past you know the 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 initial shock on your first showing and and that sort of thing, the suspense is still there because you very much want this person to uh, escape every time you you don't you know he puts you in the position of judging her of going with her of trying to understand her, and what it actually reminded me of was with rear window and it's spoiler alert on this one. When the killer comes into the apartment at the end, uh, I'll never forget when, you know, same, same class when we watch that, um, you know, the professor pointing out, this is a guy who killed his wife and he comes in and he makes him sympathetic to the audience. Cause he walks in and he says, why are you doing this to me? And so even though she's committed this crime that if you read about it in the newspaper, you're like, oh, geez, you, you need to go to jail. Like, he instantly puts you in this sympathetic, uh, you know, step with her. And, you know, I think it's just a, it's just a brilliant movie as a result because the, the murder, the horror aspect of it is, is just secondary. And, you know, I, I know I'm rambling at this point, but I, I also want to put in there that the one role that I enjoy more and more Every single time I watch it is Arbogast Mm -hmm. because I think that is that that is in some sense for me, the soul of the movie. He's the viewer. He's not he's not condemning Mary. He just wants to know what's going on. Yeah. And so like he he's this proxy for the viewer. And it it was Martin Balsam plays him. Right. I think I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And he does such a great job of being that that character that is pursuing the truth. He's not pursuing punishment. He's not pursuing um, any sort of uh, superiority. He's just pursuing the answers, the answers that the audience wants as to why did this happen? What's going on? Well, you know, what, it, what has happened here? Yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, part of that, that whole thing where there's like the shift in perspective and everything like that. I mean, this is something which I talk about a lot because I, I'm always very sort of impressed by it. And that's the, the concept of uh, a gear shift movie. Um, yeah, this is a, you know, it's that's a, a, a phrase which I think Paul Thomas Anderson is responsible for coining. But the idea behind it is basically, you know, a movie which goes in one direction and then halfway through changes and becomes something else entirely, you know? Mm-hmm. And it seems like that's something which happens in horror movies a lot, you know, from dusk till dawn. Certainly an example of that. A uh, more recent example would be uh, Red State. Um, there's there's a lot of them. And I feel like this is the, the prime example. This is the quintessential example. You know, Psycho is the, the Citizen Kane of gear shift movies. And okay. <laughs> It's the the way that the the start of this movie is is structured is very much sort of like a uh, I, I don't know if you call it a heist movie or what, but you've got Marion Crane and she's stolen this money and now she's on the run, 
And it's all about her, you know, trying to get away with it, right? And it's something which um, is is common in a lot of Hitchcock movies, you know, that sort of idea of, you know, like the criminal element or whatever. Uh, but at the same time, it, it's not like it's a violent crime or anything. It's a crime of, you know, greed. And we basically complete her story. We get to the point where she's like, you know what? I've seen the error in my ways, and I'm going to return the money and deal with the consequences, right? She she completes her arc, and she just she's going to sleep before actually, you know, acting on it. Um, and then, out of nowhere, she gets killed, right? And yeah. all of a sudden... I mean, and and the casting and everything it plays into this completely, you know. And I'm I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said before, like you're you're saying, you know, it's hard to, to say something new about Psycho. But you know, Janet Lee was by far the biggest star in this movie, and she was a pretty big star at the time. And this was definitely like Janet Lee in Psycho. And now all of a sudden, half an hour in, she's dead. She's flat out dead you know and it's like well now i have no idea where this movie is going you know what where what is the movie now you know and it becomes something completely different it becomes an uh, essentially a new genre the slasher film right which hadn't really existed up until this point except for uh blood feast right i think that was the only one herschel gordon herschel gordon levitt that's the guy's name herschel gordon lewis yeah, I'll go with you. Herschel Jordan sure. Lewis, yeah. Have you ever seen Blood Feast? I have not. <laughs> if have you not. want to see a crazy movie, watch Blood Feast. It's like late 50s, like it's extremely low budget, and it was basically all about trying to put the most blood you could possibly put on screen. It's one of those where... You would think that like Mystery Science Theater three thousand would would tackle it, but it's something to behold for sure. Anyway, all right, I'm going to trust you on this. It's <laughs> it's Shocktober, so I'll go ahead and watch. This. Oh yeah, for sure, it's a classic. It's a classic. All right. Okay, all right. Um, but yeah, uh, this was uh, that was like the only slasher movie which existed up to, till now. You know, for all practical purposes. So. You know, that's crazy. I mean, the fact that you're basically changing genres halfway through the movie. And what that does is it really creates that sense, which I think everyone always looks for to some degree or another when they go in to watch a movie, which is to, you know, keep on asking, like, what's going to happen next? You know? Yeah. That's one of the reasons why I love gear shift movies, because it's like you you don't know what's going to happen next. It could be anything, you know, and that's exciting. And this movie does that so well. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I love it. But, you know, there's everything else, you know, involved with it, which is is so great. Like, um, you know, the fact that it defined horror in in a lot of ways and defined the slasher film and all that stuff. Um, And then just, you know, sort of all of the, um, you know, sort of um, thematic elements that that uh, we talked about a lot last week, too, but, you know, just the idea, the concept of horror and everything. And and this being, like, a legitimately scary movie. I don't know if you were scared by it, but... You know, I, I don't know if I'd say scared, but I would definitely say thrilled. Yeah. You know, like, it's it's definitely a, a thrilling sort of movie because, because of the fact that, you know, because of what you said, because it's unexpected. And actually, while while you're saying that, I suddenly realized there's there is something of a tradition now um, that that probably has its origin with Psycho of you know, of the unexpected death, whether it's in a horror movie or you know, I mean, zombie counts as horror. But when the unexpected death occurs, I it, what's funny to me is while you're saying that, I have friends who are still bothered by it. <laughs> where if you put a name in the movie. And you off them quickly. I have friends who are bothered, who uh, feel a little cheated. So I can only imagine knowing their reaction today with much lesser works that, you know, have this sort of thing happen or where the characters killed in the first act that they didn't expect to or, or something like that. I can only imagine how the first audiences were just like, what the F when Janet Lee dies? 
where it's like, well, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. You know, like how could you like she's she's big time on the posters. Yeah. For the movie. You know, it's like come and see Janet Lee. And it's like that has got to be such a kick in the gut. Yeah. In terms of expectation and probably fueled a lot of the love for it from other people because it like Janet Lee's the one you would never expect to get killed. Never, ever expect. Exactly. And and that was, you know, kind of the the inspiration for that whole marketing campaign that they had where they said, you know, no one will be admitted into the movie after it starts, you know. Yeah. And that in the. I mean, this is all legend again, but this seems pretty pretty valid to me that the, the reason behind that was, you know, um, Alfred Hitchcock was like, okay, we have Janet Lee in this movie. We're really, you know, promoting the fact that she's in this movie. If someone comes in late, she's going to be dead and they're going to be like, where's Janet Lee? You know? Right. So we want to make sure that people, you know, get get all the Janet Lee they have coming to them or whatever, you know? And that's why they're going to do that. It's yeah. it's weird. The, the the promotion of this movie was was kind of brilliant too. You know, I mean, one of the things that he did, which infuriated critics, was he didn't screen it for critics. He said, you know, really? what, there's a surprise, and I don't want the surprise ruined. And because of that, we're not doing any critic screenings. And because of that, when the movie first came out, it was panned. Because all of the critics, you know, were like, you want us to go watch a movie with regular people? This is beneath <laughs> us, you know? And then by the time huh. the end of the year rolled around, all of those same critics were like, yeah, okay, this is obviously one of the top ten films of the year. <laughs> you know, they they finally came around. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just stuff like that. I mean, Hitchcock was a master in terms of marketing. I mean, there's that trailer, which they actually showed at this screen that I went to. Have you seen the trailer for Psycho? Uh, not in a very long time. Do you, are you familiar with it? or no? I am. But, I'm familiar with it, but it, it's been a long time since I actually watched it. Okay, yeah. It's for those yeah. people who don't know, it's a, it's a, like six minutes long, literally. And what it is is it's Alfred Hitchcock giving you a tour of the set. Where he's like, this is the cabin. Something yeah. very important happens in here, you know. Or like he goes, takes you up yeah. to the house, you know, and like the this the body it came tumbling down the stairs and it twisted in this. I I just I I can't even I can't even think about it. I'm sorry. Let's let's move over here, you know. And it's all done with with a, a very you know sort of like smart sense of humor, and. Um, it it just sort of like added to the fun of this movie and sort of like um, took people off guard or whatever as they were going into watching it, you know? Yeah. Well, I, well, I mean, it made it an event movie. And yeah. if you look at the if you look at like the the promo lobby card where um, he is, you know, he's pointing at his watch and he and it says nobody will be admitted late. And he's, you know, he's like looking at you like I'm pointing at my watch. I'm not going to let you in. He's outlined in red. And if you look at the way the the uh, the outline, the contour breaks on his ear, he has this little devil ear. Oh, really? He has like this little pointy devil ear. Like it, they embody him as almost like this devilish figure of like, hey, hey, <laughs> time to pay the piper. And it's it's really, you know, I, I guess I guess more than anything, maybe. Uh, you know, not more than anything, but, you know, maybe people overlook the marketing for the movie uh, when, when they analyze it sometimes. I mean, you know, obviously not all around, but I, th I think the general public needs to appreciate that, like, the marketing did have a lot to do with driving the hype and with driving, you know, I think some of the love of this movie, uh, you know, in the long run. It's a very meta movie, you know, I mean, yeah. watching it now, you know, showing it to, to people who, you know, naturally are not aware of the, you know, historical context, you know, it's one thing and it works extremely well. It holds up as one of the best movies of all time. But when you, you take a look at like what was going on, you know, in the culture and in terms of the industry and who was a big star and who wasn't and everything like that, it's just like. Uh, next level stuff, you know. I mean, it's it's oh, yeah. it's pretty crazy. I mean, the, you know, the the only thing in terms of horror, I think that really comes close to it, and this is basically playing homage to it, is Scream, which 
I, I yeah. personally think is, a, is an amazing, amazing movie. But, you know, Drew Barrymore was, I think, probably at the time the biggest star in that movie. And, you know, spoilers for Scream, but she dies in the first scene. And that's very much a reference to Janet Leigh and Psycho. And, and you know, I think that that's kind of great. But yeah, I well, I would think, though, that uh, you can't talk about Psycho without, of course, talking about the very conscious references that uh, John Carpenter put into Halloween. Oh, yeah. Even naming one of his characters, Sam Loomis. I mean, and that is, you know, because Psycho is regarded as, you know, one of the establishing films of the slasher genre, whereas Halloween popularized it to the point where it had so many imitators. And what they were trying to do was create tension on the scale of, of psycho and uh, it still stands out because it was, it's inspiration was so great. And then, you know, it's sort of like, uh, I, I guess cloning in star Wars, the clones of the clone were a lot weaker than the, uh, <laughs> you know, the clone of the original. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I mean, even to the point of casting Janet Lee's daughter as the, as the lead in, in Halloween. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But yeah, that's no, right. It, it definitely. That that has a, a pretty heavy uh, influence on, on the entire genre. Um, yeah, so, I mean, everything about it is, is top-notch. You know, the performances, I mean, we haven't really talked about Anthony Perkins, but his performances. So, I mean, to me, it always struck me as very naturalistic for the time. And, you know, just creepy in in the sense that it's weird you know he was doing some really interesting stuff there and and i think that it's really cool um he was ended up being completely typecast because of it he was so good that everyone just saw him as norman bates which is unfortunate because i think he could have done a lot more given the opportunity he, he was nominated for an oscar in like 1956 for something else wasn't he was he i mean that, yeah, yeah I, I think he i think he was like an oscar nominee coming into this movie yeah so and the fact that he was typecast afterward truly is tragic because he had shown that he had, you know, real, you know, real skill. I mean, obviously he shows it in this film too, but you know, the, the part, the, the part of his character where he's always eating uh candy. Yeah. That was him. Yeah. He was the one that, that proposed that to Hitchcock. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it shows, you know, some, some really interesting um, thinking on his part because, you know, he was, coming up with these ideas which were you know very very uh um influential on on the character you know he wasn't just performing the role i mean like we talked about like leonard nimoy doing that with spock you know and he's doing the same thing here i mean after this he did like he he worked with uh hitch or i'm sorry orson wells he 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 did the trial based on the kafka thing yeah which that movie's not good but you know (laughs) That's okay. And then he went on to direct Psychos 3 and 4 uh, himself, which is kind of cool. So, Well, I mean, if you're going to be stuck doing the role, at least, you know, I mean, in a sense, that too is like Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. It's like, all right, fine. If you're going to make me play it, I get to direct it. Yep. Yep. Which is cool. So, and I mean, the music, of course, is iconic. You know, I mean, everyone knows the score, even people who haven't seen the movie, you know. It's uh, oh, yeah. it's terrifying on its own. And then the editing, I mean, the shower sequences is legendary and it's something which is dissected by many, many a film student who uh, is trying to figure out how this works, how this terror is created. And it was certainly way ahead of its time. I mean, nothing. You look at it now and it looks tame and it looks slow <laughs> to some extent, but you know, back then, I mean, nothing like that had ever been done before, and it's, it's kind of interesting. So, I don't know. I still, I, I still think that it, it play. Uh, I, I know what you're saying about it looking slow uh, by comparison, but give me the shower scene in Psycho any time of day, a hundred times a day, over anything that you're going to see in. Uh, I can't even think of the name of it. There was, there was one of those torture porn movies that i watched um hostile or something no it wasn't i, I refused to watch hostile because i like saw a scene from it and i was like i'm out i'm done <laughs> i don't like that stuff but there was one it was like on for free and i was it was late at night it was i, I think uh saw fergie's husband was in it <laughs> where they were like on a trip to the amazon or something it was transformers on somebody's... three 
horrifying <laughs> in and of, in and of itself, but no. Um, okay. Yeah. But, you know, that shower scene, like when her hand comes up and grabs very slowly grabs, like, I think that really is so beautiful because it just captures that, you know, she's so, she's so trying to just hold on, not die, you know, like that. I think that everybody will hit in that final moment of like, no, 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 no. Wait, I, just, just one more, one more minute. Yeah. Yeah. But, but even speaking with the score, like the, the, there's really tense music that plays over what would be considered a tame scene now where she's driving out of town with the money and her boss has seen her. Mm-hmm. The music cue there would seem nonsensical to today's audiences in a lot of ways because it's like, oh, well, she's just driving out of town with the money. But the music underscores, no, this is a very major major thing that's happening right now yeah. like this is terrifying to her she's taking this huge risk mm-hmm. and so you know uh, and i think that um i forget what scene it was but there was oh it was actually um arbogast's death uh where hitchcock felt that the visuals didn't work and so uh bernard herman asked to like hitchcock took the weekend off or something like that i i'm not remembering the story exactly and so herman got together with the editor and put the music over it. And then Hitchcock rewatched it and said, no, okay. Yeah. That, that made it work. And I think he even said afterward that he said a third of the movie's success is, is due to the score, which for Hitchcock, he might as well have kissed Bernard Herman full on the lips at a press conference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. And that scene, the, the Arbogast death uh, to me it's almost scarier than the shower scene because like the shower scene, it's like a technical marvel. And there's the moment where, you know, you see the, the, the figure, you know, it, yeah. it from the, you know, inside the, the shower. And it's like, Oh my God. And, and it is terrifying because it's like, you know, we talked about last week, like you're so isolated in, in, yeah. in this, you're in your own little world and really anyone could come in and you'd have no idea until it was too late, you know, which is exactly what happens. But there's also something in the Arbogast scene. I think what it is is it's like it's so slow and there's so much buildup. And then when you have that overhead shot and oh yeah, she, he, well, Norman, dressed as mother, runs out of the bedroom. It's so like every day, but the music on top of it is just like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, you know, oh, my God, yeah. what, because there's just this moment of, like, what is it? It's weird, you know, what what's going on here? You know, it's like an old lady with a knife, you know, that's not normal, you know? Yeah. You don't, you don't normally think you have to worry about old ladies, but, you know, this one has a knife. That's terrifying, you know? And the the angle is weird and everything, and it's, yeah, it's pretty great, but... Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I mean, even switching to the overhead angle preserves the secret. Yeah. Right. Because if you saw nor you know, like there's no way in the plane lighting like that, like in the shower, you could have him backlit and, and stuff like that. And you could mess with uh, his height. But overhead, you can't tell any height difference or build or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's pretty great. Yeah. All right. Well, let's um, move on uh, a little bit and, and talk about how this compares with Stefano's Star Trek the next generation episode skin of evil skin of evil is the one where tasha yar dies yeah and there's the big oil slick made of evil it's kind of like a skin so yeah i mean do you see any uh similarities or any connections of of any sort armis is an emotionally disturbed creature <laughs> that likes to kill there's that um, for sure yeah, that's about all I got. <laughs> okay, I mean, I don't know. To me, like, I, generally speaking, I think that, that Skin of Evil has a, an overall creepy tone to it, like, from the beginning, and part of that's reinforced by the music and everything. But, I mean, I think structurally, I mean, one of the things which is kind of interesting is that a main character dies unexpectedly early on, you know? I mean, even okay. even I mean, on the show, if you're just watching the show, for one thing, you're not expecting it because it's a main character. I mean, she might as well be Janet Lee. You're expecting a red shirt to die, and here she just 
dies. And it's not like it's a big elaborate thing. It's not like it's building up to it. It's not like it's a finale or anything like that. It's like literally just here's this thing and now she's dead, you know? And it's like, yeah. whoa, that's... And, and like when you watch, like even when you know that she's going to die, like from, you know, like I knew that she died. I, that, that, that to me, I mean, going into it, it's like, well, this is the episode where Tasha Yar dies, you know? I'm finally going to get to see this, you know, I mean that because I've read, you know, Larry's book and everything. And, you know, I, and I know how, how this is going to go down, you know, and yeah. um, even then you're watching it and you're like, wait, that's it. Wait, that's they just killed her like that at the beginning of this episode. Well, what's the rest of the episode going to be, you know? So, I don't know. That that to me, it, it, I, I do definitely see a similarity there. I don't think it's nearly as effective. I think it's more of a, huh? Than like, oh my God, they killed her. But I don't know. I mean, maybe watching it back then, it would have been different. Did, were you watching the show when that happened? I was. And I all I remember is being, I, I mean, I, w- I was a lot younger. And maybe because I hadn't seen Psycho, I was legitimately confused. <laughs> Yeah. Like it was one of those things where it's like, you know, she gets iced and it's like, but she's wait. Yeah. She'll come back in the last scene or something. I mean, you totally think she's going to come back, you know, that's because that's what happens on Star Trek. Right. And then she does. not It's like, well, that's weird. How do they not have any special magic, you know, voodoo stuff to bring her back? Khan's blood. Yeah. Where was Khan's blood? I don't, yeah. I don't understand. Well, they didn't have any tribbles to incubate it in. Perhaps, perhaps the that problem. was the problem. Oh well. Yeah. R.I.P. Tasha. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think generally speaking, it has a creepy tone, and and you know, I also think that it, you know, thematically, it is dealing with sort of the concept of evil, and like an evil being and someone who's sort of been cast aside by you know society or whatever. And just forced to to exist alone, and you know, they're what people consider to be evil. And it's like, yes, they're evil, but at the same time, in some ways, they're a victim of circumstance. You know, they've been abandoned, and uh, you know, this is what happens. I'll give you abandoned, but I'd say that the killing probably contributes to the desire to abandon them. I, I mean, I guess that's definitely true in, in Skin of Evil in particular, but like we were saying a couple of weeks ago, I still feel bad for that creature, you know? It just wants to be loved. And sure, <laughs> it, it, it was probably abandoned because it's pure evil, but at the same time, I'm just like, oh, it's, it's a, So, okay, so, all right. That, that's a very interesting philosophy, but I'd say probably... You and I might differ philosophically there. No, that's fair I'd enough. Say, fair enough. You know. Yeah. I'd say that the hugging technique <laughs> requires enough work that that Armus should have been left alone to practice it on a rock or something. So as not to kill people when the hugs occurred. Perhaps. Perhaps. Yeah. Um <laughs> so yeah, I mean that's all I got. I mean, obviously the the connection is pretty weak. I mean Skin of Evil is certainly not anywhere near as good as Psycho, at least in my opinion, I don't know what you think. Uh, well, see, but see, I think that that in and of itself speaks to how much of a, uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to say like team effort, but like Stefano writes a script that's based on, you know, a, a source material and everything, but he's working with Alfred Hitchcock. And I think that that in and of itself would make anybody elevate their game but at the same time Hitchcock made Hitchcock things yeah so it was I'm not going to say easier because it unquestionably was not easy to put together a a terrific script like Psycho is but it was you know like it, it was probably much more of a I'd say that especially since we're dealing with like you know early next generation which you know, the the writing staff itself didn't know what the hell it wanted. Mm-hmm. Stefano goes from working with somebody who knew what he wanted. This is, I am Alfred Hitchcock, and this is the type of movie I make, and this is what we're going to do, to uh, we need to kill Tasha Yar and something. Yeah, yeah. You know, like it's a, it's a different different sort of circumstance. Yeah, for sure, for sure. 
But, I mean, you can see some connections thematically if you look hard enough, I guess, you know. Perhaps yeah. perhaps it's an example of uh, trying to find something which supports your thesis, but, you know, whatever. It's there, I guess. A woman does die. That's true. There, There That's is true. that. There's a similarity right there. Yeah. All right, before we go, one, one last thing. Um, years later, 38 years later, um, Psycho was remade by Gus Van Sant, who was coming off of his uh, Oscar nomination for, for Goodwill Hunting, and he chose to use Joseph Stefano's screenplay for his version as well. He decided to do a shot-for-shot remake of the movie, and um, yeah, so 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 there's two. I mean, he, uh, so he we talked before about how he also wrote Psycho for the beginning, but yeah, in addition to those things, he's he's written another Psycho technically, uh, as far as the royalties are concerned, and uh, yeah, that's the 1998 Psycho, and now you haven't seen this. Nope. Is there a reason why you? have chosen not to watch this movie? Somebody could remake Wizard of Oz and I wouldn't go see it. Somebody could remake Touch of Evil and I won't go see it. Somebody could remake Vertigo. I think you're getting the point here Mm -hmm. of like there are certain movies where a remake does not interest me. Remaking a Dracula movie, I will buy a ticket (laughs) and I'm on board. It's been remade so many times. I love vampires. I love Dracula's. I'll go see it. Dracula 2000, I think, is a highly underrated movie, as a matter of fact. That's incorrect, but okay. It's very correct. But <laughs> I will not go. I it's I As soon as I heard Shot for Shot remake with Vince Vaughn and Anne Heche, I was like, well, thank you at least for being honest and telling me several reasons why I don't want to go see this movie. See, to me, I, I guess I had the opposite reaction. You know, I mean, you say you're remaking Psycho, and I say, hmm, that's interesting, especially since it's based on a book. I wonder if they're going to be truer to the book. I wonder what they're going to do. Then you say, uh, Gus Van Sant is making it. And I say, well, he made To Die For, and that movie's a masterpiece, and I'm willing to see anything that he sees now because who knows what he's going to do, you know, especially him who does something different, like every time out, you know, except for finding Forrester, which is essentially a shot for shot remake of Goodwill Hunting, but regardless. And then, and then you say, well, like Gus Van Sant's philosophy was very similar to yours, which is like, why would you remake Psycho? That's a perfect movie. The only thing that I could think to do would be just make the same exact movie shot for shot. And then he's like, oh, yeah, that's what I should do. And a lot of people are like, what's the point? And to me, I mean, I I saw the movie, you know, that was the first movie I ever watched at at a screening when we were checking prints at at the movie theater. Anyway, um, to me, like, what's really interesting about that movie is how it sort of is all about form and all about uh, how aesthetics change over time and whether or not something which was you know the the best that there could be back in 1960 whether that works in 1998 and not because techniques have advanced so far you know since 1960 but because you know society has changed and movie watchers have changed and w- will the techniques which were created back in 1960 play to today's audience? Not because they're more sophisticated or anything, but because they're different. So, and also language and everything. How has, you know, just the way that people talk changed? You know, I mean, all of these things. And it's, it's, it's about, you know, grammar, both in terms of, you know, the traditional sense and also film grammar and everything. And, you know, the, the end result, I think, is, is a, a really interesting experiment. And um, I, I, I kind of love it a lot. I, I really do, you know. And I, know I was the only one back in 1998. <laughs> and I'm the only one now. There's a few people now who are like, hey, you know, this like Tarantino apparently thinks it's amazing, you know. 
Um, okay. <laughs> I, okay. That doesn't see the thing is that doesn't hold any. Say Tarantino thinks Tarantino. Okay. Tarantino. I'm not going to say anything that's going to get me in any trouble about like doing truckloads of cocaine and stuff like that. But come on. Like, look, here's eh. here's the thing about Tarantino, right? He has a lot of very strange out there opinions, right? But yes. Tarantino, in a lot of ways, when it comes to opinions and, and film criticism and everything, I I hold Tarantino in sort of the same regard that I hold Max, where if he says something, even if I completely disagree with it, I take note of it because there's got to be a reason why he likes this thing. Like, I mean, in, in terms yeah. of like, in terms of like liking a thing, like if Max says like, this movie is amazing. I'm like, what am I missing? Cause I'm definitely missing something. If Max thinks this movie is amazing, there's gotta be something really interesting going on in it. You know, Max will See, dismiss okay. a lot of stuff, which is All good. Right. But See, the thing is, now you're backing me into a corner. <laughs> Why is that? I, you dirty doll. <laughs> because now, if I'm like, nope, I refuse to see it. Now it's going to be like, because I don't respect Mike. That's <laughs> no. not fair, man. No, no, now no. Now I got to see did not, this thing. I did not mean that. I, I, you I, backed I, me totally into a corner, and I've been exposed to the entire Trek, that, Trek <laughs> FM network as a jerk who doesn't respect your opinion. No, no, no. Fa- well played. No. no. Actually, <laughs> I tip my hat virtually to you, sir. Well played. I will watch the movie. Th- that I was surrender. You win. That was not at all my intention at all. <laughs> I, I I promise you that. And there are plenty of movies which Tarantino says are good. Where I'm like, no, I'm not watching that. I'm. Well, sorry. see, the thing is, that's also that that also uh, chips away at my resolve because he's the whole reason I saw Iron Monkey. Oh yeah, and realized it as an unattributed um, inspiration piece for the Phantom Menace. Oh, which yeah. we all know I love. But like Iron Monkey, like I watched that and I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Lucas watched this. Yeah. Yeah. So it, fine. I'll it, see it. It, it. I mean, here's the thing. What's the worst that can happen? You know, it, it's bad, right? Time is of the essence in my no, life No, this right is now. true. This is true. I mean, that is that is definitely true. I mean, well, here's the thing. You know exactly what you're getting. Like literally. And this is something true. that happened back when the thing came out where they were like, it's a shot-for-shot shot remake of Psycho. And everyone's like, really? Like, what is it? And they're like, it's a shot-for-shot shot remake of Psycho. And then they're like, so you, you changed something, though, right? And, like, there were all these rumors, you know, people like, I hear that. Like, once, like, even when I was in the theater watching it with my coworkers, like, I remember, you know, the other projectionist, like, he misheard a word. Like, when, like, after the murder, you know, yeah. it, he goes running back up to the house and he's like mother mother blood blood you know it he my coworker thought that instead of saying blood he said the f word right and he's like oh i get it everything's the same up until the murder and then <laughs> everything's different and like Gus Van Sant and everyone kept on saying throughout the entire production and, and publicity, they're like, no, it's exactly, we, we do not have a major twist. We are not pulling the wool over your eyes. This is exactly the same thing. That's the whole point. And no one believed them, right? So with that being said, you know exactly what you're getting, right? <laughs> That's true. And 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 what it does to me at least is, you know, even though it's not nearly as good as the original, it even if you don't like this one, it sort of helps to paint the original in a in a different light. You start seeing pulling out other elements and seeing how like maybe like you know, Hitchcock was using subtext in places. And, you know, here, like, there's the scene where um, Vera Miles is going through Norman's bedroom and, like, she pulls out a book and, like, she, and the book has, like, no, no title on it or anything. It's just, like, a plain book. And she pulls it out and then she, like, turns it around and then she opens it up and then we cut, right? It's like, yeah. well, in, in, in the Gus Van Sant version, you open it up and you realize that it's porn, you know? And it's like, oh, okay. Well, now now you watch the original and you're like, oh, that's, that's really freaking obvious, you know? Maybe I'm, you know, slow on the uptake here. But, <laughs> but th- like, 
that's the type of thing that 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 this does you know there's points where it does sort of you know stray into some stuff that you can do now that you couldn't do back then which i think is interesting and i think i also think it's interesting to see the performances because man the cast is killer no pun intended um Julianne Moore. It's basically the cast of Boogie Nights. Julianne Moore. William H. Macy as Arbogast, which that guy, he kills in this movie. He knows how to talk. He knows how to read dialogue, especially that punchy 60s Stefano dialogue. Oh, my God. He was born to say that stuff, you know? So good. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then Philip Baker Hall is in it and Viggo Mortensen and everything. I would definitely recommend watching the the Gus Van Sant version because even if you don't like it, I mean, look at it as like an experiment, and and it will it'll paint um, it'll it'll change your viewing of of uh, Hitchcock's Psycho probably for the better. So, all right, I surrender. All right, you win. All right, I'll watch it. Cool. Let me know what you think. Okay. Well, I guess that's pretty much it. Do you have any final thoughts on uh, Psycho? The movie? Everybody should see it. It's it's going to draw... It, like, th- this is easily... I could see somebody being like me with the Gus Van Zandt version and being like, yeah, whatever. Okay, everybody loves it. There's a reason everybody loves this. There's a reason why Hitchcock is such a respected director, and this is a shining example. Like, brilliant film. You really should see it if you like film in the least. And by film, I mean anything that's not directed by Michael Bay. Well, Michael Bay's a good director, but regardless of that... He's a good movie director, not a film director. Uh, he, he shoots on film, or at least he used to. Movie versus film. It's a whole weird distinction that I have. Okay, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I can't uh, subscribe to that philosophy, but uh, are you saying The Rock is not a film? Yes. <laughs> it's a movie. It's great entertainment. I, I love it. I, I don't know. I have trouble with that. I, have, I don't know. But no, 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 no. regardless, I agree with you that uh, everyone should see Psycho. I mean, hopefully no one is listening to this now who hasn't seen Psycho. Um, I'm, I'm hoping, right? I mean, yeah, we warned everybody. Yeah, we even we waited for you, you know? Come yeah, on, no. guys. We sat here. We sat here. We gave you time. Yeah. So, but yes, I agree that it is one of the best movies ever made, uh, for sure. So, um so yeah, and 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 a lot of that has to do with Stefano's screenplay and the structure in particular. I think is amazing, and uh, that's you know can be seen by how many movies have uh, stolen it. You know, yeah. So yeah, definitely check it out. Well, it's been fun talking about Psycho today, but this isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on Trek FM this week. So here's a look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. <laughs> Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. Not inner space. Inner phase. Inner space is the... That's the one where they shrink down and they, like, go and, like, fight viruses. First movie I ever saw, Letterboxd. Huh. I was like, why are there black bars in the top and bottom of the screen? This movie is garbage. Earl Grey. Daddy, do pets have a Nexus 2? <laughs> the Pexus. Kirk had a, a dog in the Nexus 2, didn't he? Oh, uh, Butler. Butler. Butler is now <laughs> Shadow. So we have the adventures homeward bound of Butler, Porthos, and Spot. Will they make it back to their owners in Montana? The Orb. Well, apparently, and did you find this interesting, Matthew? Apparently... The Navark reports directly to the prophets. Which is awkward because they don't always show up for meetings, so... Right. Yeah. Plus, you never know what time the meeting is really going to be, right? That is true. It could have been yesterday, and you might have missed it. The Ready Room. Do you think this episode would have been so popular and remain a fan favorite if the Enterprise had been overrun with zebra mussels? <laughs> <laughs> to the journey! It's fake intimacy. Thank you. It is them trying to say Chakotay knows Janeway so well that just by fiddling her com badge, he knows the crap's gonna hit the fan. <laughs> Commentary, Trek stars. Weird is relative when you're talking about a book about a guy who taxidermies his mother, so... The 602 Club. 
I think you've uh, hit something here, and I've never thought of it this way, but the true savior of the galaxy, it's not Obi-Wan, it's not Luke Skywalker, it's Aunt Beru. Literary Treks. Reagan's a great guy to bring up because his dad was this raging drunk, mm. and, uh, you know, he had a sort of drag him in on the, off the porch at night because he'd come home, like, falling down drunk, and, you know, you think of... And here he was, this kind of great man for the country at the time, uh, but he came from a place that was really kind of dark and also very relatable. Women at Warp. There's always a touchstone, and this was as close to a touchstone as they ever got with Pulaski. Plus she banged Riker's dad. (laughs) Oh, Andy. I'm sorry, I just think it's so funny. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 files from our website or grab the RSS link as well. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And I don't know if you saw this, John, but uh, just this week, um, Chris uh, set up like a, a new like micro site or whatever it is for mm-hmm. Patreon uh, patrons where it's got like all sorts of stuff. Like it's got wallpapers and uh, avatars and um bonus content and everything like yeah. that it's pretty cool like there's even a uh a secret pilot for a, a new mm-hmm. show which is coming out so yeah yeah it's really cool man it's uh you know that's uh it's one of the things that uh sets it apart is that there really are exclusives for people to partake yeah and early things too like if i get this edited like tomorrow then maybe it'll be up there you know a couple days early. It's like we we just had a, a standard orbit because Drew edits that one, so he can, you know, he he does that um, early because he's on top of things, and <laughs> and you know, so so the episode dropped this morning, and then someone was already on the Babel conference saying like, oh, I listened to it last night, cool stuff, and it's like, wait, what? How? Oh, Patreon, yeah. So so definitely check it out. It's cool. If you want to contact us, you can fill out the form on trek.fm slash contact, or uh, you can leave us a voicemail if you look on the sidebar of the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. On Twitter, you can find the network at trek.fm. On Facebook, you can find the network at facebook.com slash trek.fm, and Facebook is also where you'll find the Babel Conference. Just type the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field, on Facebook or go to our website at trek.fm and click on the discussion tab on the menu bar. And the Babel Conference is where all of the listeners and hosts talk about um, everything which is going on on the network and in the world of Star Trek and all that good stuff. John, where can people find you on the Internet? Well, you can find me crawling around Twitter at Kessel Junkie, and you can also find me on a weekly show called Words with Nerds that I co-host with my friend Craig, where we talk about all sorts of insanity and look for it in iTunes, Stitcher, and all the usual places. And you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K, or you can find me on Trek FM doing Standard Orbit for another nine episodes. Or you can find me on CommentaryTrackStars.com doing Commentary Trackstar Babies. Uh, Just this week we put up an episode in which I'm joined by this guy named John to talk about 
the first episode of Lost, which, by the way, yeah. is directed by a Star Trek creator, um, yes. J.J. Abrams. So be sure to go there and check that out. Matthew Rushing makes a cameo on that uh, particular episode. And but not a Janet Lee-style cameo. No, he doesn't die in the beginning. He actually shows up at the end. He's kind of like yeah. uh, the psychiatrist at the end of the movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he pieces it all together for everybody. Yeah, but he's not nearly as boring as that guy. You know, I take exception to that. I thought that guy was awesome. Oh, you should see him in the remake. They've got Robert Forster as that guy. So Perfect. much better. Anyway. You can also find us as a show on Twitter at ComTrackStars, or you can email us directly at ComTrackStars at gmail.com. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor, who helps us bring commentary, TrackStars, and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. John, what book do you have for us this week? Ah, well, this week I think everybody should uh, download from Audible and listen to The Moment of Psycho, How Alfred Hitchcock Taught America to Love Murder. It's written by David Thompson, and it's narrated by Jeff Woodbin. And uh, the synopsis is, it was made like a television movie and completed in less than three months. It killed off its star in 40 minutes. There was no happy ending. And it offered the most violent scene to that date in American film, punctuated by shrieking strings that seared the national consciousness. Nothing like Psycho had existed before, and the movie industry, even America itself, would never be the same. And you can get this book for free since you listen to Trek FM. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we thank Audible for supporting Commentary, Trek Stars, and Network. All right. So, we've talked about the novel. We've talked about the movie. Or should I say film? Film, yes. <laughs> and next week, what we're going to do is we're going to tie a nice little bow on this series and talk about both of them in comparison to each other. Mm-hmm.